This episode, we're off to the cradle of civilization to show you that getting too much sleep is actually way worse than you ever thought it could be. And for our fact, we get to dive into an ancient Arabic technique that more than just a few of you are going to recognize. However, you might not have known that this storytelling style is getting some modern-day love with a resurgence going down the world over. Straight up trending, baby! Here on the Colored Folklore Podcast. Episode 7, The Middle East, Zoroastrian Creation Myth. Hello! How's everyone doing here as we enter the second month of 2021? That feels so weird to say. Hopefully well, hopefully safe, hopefully happy. Thank you so much for checking out the podcast. Starting off the show there was the nasty in all the good ways, Mr. Mischief, a track by All Good Folks, and the logo of the show is supplied by the wonderful Arthur, while the podcast cover art is provided by the amazing Jacqueline. Thank you, thank you, thank you to each and every one of you. Jumping right into the episode today, we're going to make our way from the Tunguzic people of Asia and make our way to the wonderfully layered, more about that later, epically detailed folklore and mythology of those spread throughout the Middle East and into the Mediterranean Basin. Now, for those of you not in the know geographically speaking, the reason why we've decided to gather our 7th Wundermachen from a hyphenated-slash-combined region, I would like to give tales in the future not just from the Middle East. For instance, Egypt. So many beautiful myths and legends, and they're part of North Africa. However, when we get into the tales of Africa, we're going to primarily be focusing on sub-Saharan Africa. So in order to give some love to this land, along with many others, we'll be going over that entire region-ish during this part of our fable-centric world tour. That being said, we have another unique factor to today's show. So far, we've taken a look at the Yoruba people of Nigeria, Africa, the Mapuche people of Chile and Argentina in South America, the Oneida of the United States and Canada in North America, the Inuit spread throughout the Arctic Circle, indigenous Australians, and the Tungizic people of Russia and China in Asia. This week, we're going over a creation story from Zoroastrian lore, which makes today's episode the first time that we'll talk about a religious group of people, not a group bound by their ethnicity. Zoroastrianism was born, more or less, in ancient Persia, which one day would become Iran. Currently, there are over 100,000 practicing Zoroastrians, and the majority of those practicing this religion reside in India and Iran. But they can be found all over the world. To dive into the history of this religion, we need to go back to before the 5th century BCE, where Zoroastrianism got its start, and would serve as the official state religion for more than a thousand years. Practiced from 600 BCE, that's before current era, to 650 CE, current era, Zoroastrianism then gave way to Islam. One of the world's oldest still-practiced religions, Zoroastrianism is based on the lessons of Zoroaster, an Iranian prophet who was also known as Zarathustra and Zarathost, which you will see is a common theme today. Multiple names because there are multiple languages and multiple titles. This religion revolves around a dualistic cosmology, 
which stands for a yin and yang type of good versus evil eternal cosmic battle. Concepts brought to the forefront include a form of heaven and hell, the original first human couple populating the planet, and free will leading to both evil deeds and good deeds, one of which that will one day bring punishment, while the other will bring blessings. If this all sounds familiar, that's because Zoroastrianism may very well have influenced other forms of society, philosophy, and religion across the entire planet. The Avesta and the Yasno are the central text of the religion, and the former includes the Gata, which are ritualized poetry and the writings of Zoroaster himself, and the latter showcases Zoroastrian worship services. Zoroaster separated ancient deities into Ahuras, those worthy of worship, and the Divas, no, not high-strung, bratty Western pop stars, but supernatural entities not considered worthy of worship. So maybe there's a little bit of a bleed-over between those two creatures after all. Asha, a highly complex term that can be equated to truth and justice in terms of cosmic alignment, competes with druj, the capacity for lies. There's geteg, the visible and physical realm, and Manog, the invisible and spiritual realm, and I cannot stress this enough, those last two were my own pronunciations, so they were probably terrible, but the whole of this section is my own personal summary. It is a two to three thousand year old religion that already has more than a modicum of interpretations and practices. It is a lot. There often are differences between ancient practice and modern beliefs, which is flavored by everything from local customs to language differences to others having part of their beliefs completely written over. For instance, when Alexander the Great invaded Persepolis, destroying the royal library there, a number of sacred Zoroastrian texts were lost, stolen, or flat-out destroyed. Upon this conquest, Alexander displaced Zoroastrianism with Hellenistic thoughts and practices, which is, of course, the religion culture, and philosophy practiced by the ancient Greeks. However, Zoroastrianism was still able to persist and find practitioners, though in small, somewhat isolated areas. This was enough to keep the religion from going completely extinct, and around the time that before current era began, Zoroastrianism would become the dominant religion of the area. This changed with the entrance of Islam, and the entire empire fell to Arabic rule during the 7th century. By the 11th century, the struggle between these two juggernauts, between Islam and Zoroastrianism, began to flame out, and the survival of Zoroastrianism was solidified, both in the region as well as abroad. Modern-day practitioners are split into two groups, traditionalist and reformist. Traditionalists are exactly as they sound. They prefer to stick to the old ways as much as possible, and they do not allow conversion, so you must be born into the religion. However, mixed families are accepted as part of the faith primarily if the father is of Zoroastrian heritage. Reformists are more of a mind to decrease the need for ritualization, approaching the concepts more as a philosophy. This has led way to the reinterpretations born in the 19th century, which include neo-Zoroastrians and revivalists. In 2003, a special designated group within the UN, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, declared it the 3,000th year of Zoroastrian culture, giving forth a full year of celebration. 
Regardless of where the religion began, or how it exists now, with our modern ability to record and maintain information, Zoroastrianism, through many trials and tribulations, is here to stay. Today, true to form of our past six myths and legends, we'll be going over the Zoroastrian creation tale to explain more of how humanity came to be, the power struggle between Zoroastrian cosmic forces, and what this epic battle may look like once it's been completed. Once, very long ago, there was a battle. On one side were the eternal forces of good, and on the other there were the infernal forces of evil. The light and the darkness were locked in a never-ending cosmic struggle. The light looking to protect from the darkness, and the darkness looking to soil everything the light touched. This period was known as infinite time, in how creation hadn't even been thought of yet. There simply exists Ahura Mazda, the Lord of Wisdom, creator of everything, and yes, even the creator behind the forces locked in this very same battle. The creator was the parent to two vastly powerful twins. Spent to mind you, the beneficent spirit was forever in direct conflict with their sibling, Engramainyu, the harmful spirit. At the very moment that they came into existence, the beneficent spirit chose to practice only good deeds, exhibiting truth and justice. Filled with spite and hatred, the harmful spirit chose to live in direct opposition to their sibling, practicing only evil deeds, traveling with injustice and destruction. Being that these cosmic powers existed on a scale incalculable to any other entity, one knows not how these wars were waged. There was no physical plane, so there was no hand-to-hand -hand combat. Spirituality hadn't even come into existence yet, so there were no mental battles. There simply exist the realm of light and the realm of darkness, separated by an endless void. Their opposition was to last this way for eons, before the harmful spirit did what to that moment was inconceivable. They were able to cross the void. The instant the harmful spirit locked eyes on their sibling, they began their attack. Able to see that this battle would literally last forever, the beneficent spirit looked to make a deal with their sibling. The beneficent spirit made the harmful spirit aware that neither entity could win this battle. In order to fix this, infinite time would have to become finite. The beneficent spirit proposed that were they to initiate creation, that they could then continue their battles with a concrete result that the other would have to abide by. With a snarl, the harmful spirit agreed. The beneficent spirit slyly smiled and began chanting. This most sacred prayer held the keys to what the beneficent spirit hoped would one day see light victorious over the dark. It also just happened to banish the harmful spirit beneath the great void, to slumber for three thousand years until the next link in the chain would begin. Continuing with their prayers, the beneficent spirit began to weave together the fabric 
that would become creation. The Beneficent Spirit first brought forth the Beneficent Immortals. Three male and three female spirits, they were each given dominion over a different facet of creation. The first male spirit was the truth, caretaker of fire, and guardian of justice and spiritual knowledge. The second was the good mind, caretaker of domesticated animals and guardian of wisdom and of love. The third was the desirable domain, caretaker of metals and guardian of power attained through spiritual purity. The first of the female spirits was the beneficent devotion, caretaker of the earth and guardian over faith and belief. The second and the third were known as the sisters, the perfection and the immortal, caretakers of water and of plants and guardians over the blessings and rewards bestowed upon true believers of the faith. While bringing the immortals into being, the beneficent spirit also continued forward praying, thinking, believing, and ultimately bringing the material world into the light. Creating the sky, the land, the water, and the fire, the physical plane was now complete. The beneficent spirit then turned his attention to seeding all life throughout this plane. And in order to do this, the spirit created Geomart, the primeval bovine, the primordial ox, the originator of human beings and plants alike. Geomart was the essence of the spirit brought into physical form, neither male nor female, but both, carrying within it the beginnings of all life on the planet. Upon the creation of Geomart, all of the roles were cast, and at this point there was nothing to do but wait. So, the beneficent spirit also went into a deep slumber, content that the harmful spirit was, for the meantime, contained beneath the void, that the immortals diligently waited, and that Geomart also would slumber with divine seeds of mortality gestating deep within its core. But, as we all know, harmful spirits are not known to sleep deeply. During the creation of the physical plane, the will of the harmful spirit sought to mirror such a creation below, willing into existence six powerful demons to counter the immortals. The harmful spirit still slept, but it was a frightful sleep indeed. From the depths of the void, the sorceress Jay came to the sleeping harmful spirit, whispering promises of servitude, of immortal reign, and of dominion over the light. With a smile and a kiss to the forehead, Jay and the harmful spirit were forever united, and power, unlike that ever known beneath the void, erupted into the physical world. Having waited for this moment for the whole of three thousand years, the beneficent spirit spoke to the newly formed species inside of Geomart. The spirit told the not-yet-born species there were two paths now laid out before them. They could remain in their current state, unborn forever, and experience no pain, but also no joy. Or they could be born into a choice, one of free will, risking potential damnation, 
but rewarded with potential enlightenment were they to choose fighting for themselves and fighting for the light. Human beings selected the latter. While the spirit was preparing humanity, the harmful spirit looked to sully all that the light had touched. Attacking creation as a whole, the mighty sorceress and the harmful spirit relented not in their attacks on the sky, on the earth, on Geomart itself. And after thirty years of direct attack, Geomart finally succumbed to such an unparalleled attack. However horrible and sad that this was, it was also foretold, and ultimately the next stage in creation. From the corpse of Geomart came forth all the seeds of life, all the metals derived from the body of the ox, all plants came from the marrow of the cow. All animals came from the soul of this divine creature. Growing deep from within all of this burst forth a mighty tree of life, whose branches, once unfurled, gave the world Masha and Mashana, the physical plane's first female and male human being. From these two humans, all of humanity would descend and they would eventually choose to follow the light or to follow the darkness. Throughout all of this, and unbeknownst to the harmful spirit, the beneficent spirit had weaved an infallible trap. Having now become part of finite time, and no longer a part of the land beneath the void, the harmful spirit was locked in place. Jay and even the spirit itself were subject to the rules of finite time which meant at the end of this current 3,000-year period, there indeed would be a final battle. However, unable to ever escape this plane in which the harmful spirit could, and may still, gain dominion over, it would spell its eventual destruction as finite time collapsed and merged back into infinite time. Thus, the evils gathered in the physical world would be forever eradicated as immortality and the light took hold of all those that had shown their loyalty and devotion through time immemorable. And according to Zoroastrians spread throughout the world, that is how creation began and how it will conclude. Now, what I was going to do is a lot different than how it ended up. Bear with me for a second and how I explain about the process here. A little behind the scenes look at the Color Folklore Research Institute, which uh, does not exist at all, but would help me so much if it did. Uh, the tale that you heard today is the combination of many, many tales. Uh, there are pretty much two distinct parts to Zoroastrianism, to the lore. Uh, that which is taken from the most ancient of sources and that which can be sourced to the Middle Ages. I took elements of both of these to make uh, what was my most liberal interpretation of the myths that I've yet undergone on this podcast. 
I'll be honest. I uh, I feel quite a bit weird about it, uh, but I'm beginning to understand more about uh, what a number of fairy tale contemporaries must must feel like when they're going through their modern day retellings. Our ancient storytellers were working with an entirely different tool set. I mean, I, I've I've known this, of course. I've talked about it in episode zero point two. Uh, when talking about the Epic of Gilgamesh. I mean, read any fairy tale from the 1700s, let alone twice that long ago, and you'll see storytellers from different ages talk about different things in different ways. So, yeah, soup's basic. Everybody knows that. However, as a student of the lore, as a fan of reading both new and old tales uh, from or about the lore, and now... (laughs) As a writer and audio storyteller of the lore, I am pulled in so many different directions that after these seven episodes, I'm just like, I get it. Initially, I was going to stick to Gamart's journey. As you can tell, it's not exactly the most exciting part of the story that you heard here today. I mean, he's created, he sleeps, he dies. Uh, Jacqueline did a gorgeous job venerating him on the, uh, the podcast episode artwork, but, uh, I didn't go into any of the other parts of the myth where he is a young man, potentially, or an early king, potentially, or any other number of directions. So though I know that this could have been a cool story, it ultimately, it wasn't this story, nor in my mind, the story that was uh, most interesting. No offense, early Persian kings. What I didn't feel necessarily aged the best, I actually, it's weird, I kind of want to put it together in the same category as what I thought worked the work. Um, In the lore, there was only one, I mean, maybe two times, when uh, the assassin, the sorceress supreme Jay, was not referred to as the whore. Now, I'll play devil's advocate to myself here, and I'm going to hold up these basic fairy tale study commandments. Thou shalt not look through the lens of time with your modern sensibilities and all that jazz. So, to do that, we're going to look straight up at her name. She was called J, which is spelled J-E-H. This was translated as the literal interpretation of whore. But this word is, it's more complex than that. Jay, in my opinion, is a mega next level badass. And in just a factual opinion, or just, it's a fact, let's move past, is derived from the older Avestanian word jahi or jahika. Pejoratively, this, this can be meant as whore, but it being used so frequently throughout Zoroastrian texts, it can also be read that J simply means woman. It might also be seen as a woman who cannot reproduce, or as a woman that behaves improperly, or a woman that practices witchcraft, or a woman that is promiscuous. We're going to keep going down this rabbit hole because remember, what does any of that even mean? In context, all right? Let's analyze the time. 
we're in ancient Persia. What does improperly mean in ancient Persia? What does promiscuous mean to ancient Persians? We already know the dangers of what the label of witchcraft has done to women throughout history. And we know what women who are unable to have kids are thought of by society to this very day. So, I'm not quite sure that saying what doesn't quite age the best is the representation of Jay in this tale. Or is it the, the use of her name and what it calls out to? Maybe it's the views of human beings. The translations done the world over that do a really poor job of conveying the meaning of things. I mean, to be truthful, English is a rather clunky, simple language that doesn't really have a number of the other beautiful subtleties and abilities that other languages have. So when someone has a name in another language that, that hints to their origin, abilities, personality, heritage, and all this stuff, things get lost when somewhere down the line someone's looking to simplify the tale because reading is already hard enough. Am I right or am I right? So, I mean, they're like, let's just call her a slut. Garbage, my friends. That is garbage. I know you're wondering, why is that uh, both the works the works and, and not the cool at all? It's more of the dive into it and hopefully what you take away from it that I'm, I'm hoping is the works. Just remember, never stop asking why. And for our fact this episode, we're going to pull a North America today. <laughs> I did the same thing last episode. I probably won't assign geographic nicknames to stuff that I repeat on the show over multiple episodes, but don't quote me on that. During our North American episode, for our fact, we gave a storytelling technique referred to as salation oral narratives, originating from those people speaking the salation language in British Columbia, Canada, and parts of the Pacific Northwest in the United States. This week, it's a little bit of the same thing, just different here in the Middle East. For anyone familiar with 1001 Nights, and if you're listening to a fairy tale podcast whose episode has to do with Middle Eastern fairy tales, you probably do. You'll understand the nesting narrative used by the protagonist, Shahrazad, where she stays alive by giving a tale within a tale within a tale, where she'll leave every night as a cliffhanger or a roundabout cliffhanger in order to tell another tale or continuation of that tale the following day slash night. It's an ancient and revered Arabic oral storytelling tradition called Hakawati using all sorts of literary devices from satire to allegory, invoking musical numbers and folklore tropes, Hakawati gives its origins away in the etymology of the word. Or, what might better come across as, calling it a title. Hakai and Hakai are the two terms that form the word. Hakai means story, and Hakai means to talk. So putting these two together gives us what? Exactly. To tell a story, or more precisely, a storyteller. Thinking back to a time before technology, before the small screen, before the silver screen, before even books were really widespread, human beings were still human beings. And let me tell you, we all, we all crave some entertainment. This took the form more often than not as a master storyteller taking the stage. One could weave drama just as easily as they could comedy. Someone could scare you by a campfire just as easily 
as they could seduce you by the moonlight. Another ancient Middle Eastern example of this storytelling craft is the famous Sinbad. Now, I'm not talking about the comedian, though later added to versions of 1001 Nights, Sinbad the Sailor was not among early manuscripts, and it's thought to have origins elsewhere. Regardless, this follows the same path in giving a frame story, and then separate but linked stories within. Looking to reclaim this infinitely interesting heritage, a new generation of Middle Eastern storytellers have stepped up to the challenge, or more aptly stated, at least for this example, stepped up to the mic. Ten years ago, Ahmed Youssef, an artist, an actor by night, an IT government official by day, was hustling the creative grind, as so many of me and my compatriots are known to do, working a survival job by day and working them stages at night. Working at the Sharjah National Theater, he's a member of a 20-person strong acting troupe that uses music and dance to help bolster retellings of ancient fables. Performing all over the UAE, they've been invited to do the same in Syria, Greece, Egypt, Tunisia, and many other locales. Encouraged by the 2008 release of Lebanese-American painter-writer Rabi Alamedin's work of fiction, The Hakawari, Arabic storytellers the world over have been taking the time and putting in that creative work to reclaim their birthright by telling stories the way their ancestors did in times of necessity but adding to them elements of the modern world to delight crowds all over the region and all over the world. And that's the show, folks. Thank you so very much for coming along with us as we toured the Middle East and the Mediterranean Basin, taking a right-quick look at some of the ancient tales and the modern folklore facts that make the entire area ripe for some badass storytelling. We would absolutely love for you to come along with us, not just one, not just two, but for each and every friggin' episode. Specifically, this next time around, where we get back to Africa. That's right, everybody. We just made our first trip around the world's folklore, and I couldn't be more pleased with how everything has gone. We have heard some sick tales, learned some awesome facts, met with some wonderful folks, and last I checked, we only getting started. Much love, thanks, and appreciation go out, as always, to all good folks for the song Mr. Mischief, which starts and concludes the podcast. Thank you, Jacqueline, for your podcast cover artwork. Just wait for next episodes. Oh my God, it looks so ill. And thank you, Arthur, for your logo artwork as well. If you have a question that is just burning a hole through the metaphorical jeans pocket that is your literal mind, please do not hesitate to write us an email at info at coloredfolklore.com. Also, if you want to slide up in them DMs, we got the social medias, maybe a little bit of Facebook, some Twitter, Instagram, you know. And for all of these, we have the same handle, Colored Folklore, all one word. As I've told you before, and will be telling you again, the place that holds all of the above information and so much more for your browsing leisure, our website has links to allies of the show, places you can hear the show, ways to connect with us in the footer, social media accounts in the header, and in the footer. And if you're ever feeling particularly frugal, you can click on that donate link. Maybe some monies, maybe some coffees, some ratings, some reviews. Oh, that last one would mean the world. And you know what means even more than all of that? Word of mouth. Can you let others know what you think of the show? Peeps that you would like to listen in. Peeps that you think need to listen in. Know somebody that likes a little bit of lore with their folk. Know anybody that likes a little bit of tale to go with their fairy? 
Know anyone that can't take the ology without their myth? I know, I know that last one didn't work, but let's be honest. None of those three worked, so this bit is not only unfunny, it's an utter, complete failure in how it don't make no damn sense. So me going with that last one allows me a tiny little bit of a victory because the rule of threes. Oh, and I don't think anyone's listening, so I'm gonna say what I want. It's the story of my life.